So I grew up uh, going to a, a very small high school. There were less than 150 people in my whole high school from grades 9 through 12. But we had a good basketball team, uh, you know, like way better than we deserved to be for our size. And our, our whole school, I think, was kind of organized around basketball. Friday nights, when we had a home basketball game, our, our tiny gymnasium was packed. There were, you know, like alum, there were parents, there were students, and it got loud. And I remember, um, so one of my friends, a uh, guy by the name of Aaron Paquette, he, he could jump just high enough, and his hand could get around the basketball just enough that if everything went right, he could slam dunk it. And so there was this one moment I remember where suddenly Aaron Paquette is on a fast break, and everyone in the stands are just watching because they all know he can theoretically dunk it. And there's no one in front of him, and he jumps up, and everyone comes to their feet, and he slams it in. And it was like the loudest moment I can remember in my childhood in that moment. There was joy, there was celebration, there was euphoria. There is something about about joy when it is shared that makes it feel more real. It's, al it's almost, I feel like, that joy is designed to be corporate. H have you noticed this? Like, when, when something happens or something's about to happen that just you, you, fills you with joy, what is your first instinct? Oftentimes, it's to talk to someone else about it, right? Because there is this, this desire to share joy. There's something about a communal celebration that is kind of like the fullest expression of that delight. So I bring that up because I think our psalm is an invitation to this kind of joy. It, it, it speaks of a, a kind of delight that is available to us. And, and when I'm talking about joy here, I'm not talking about that very polite kind of inner sense of well-being. You know, the very first words of our psalm says, shout for joy. We're talking about something exuberant, something overflowing. And you can tell that it's communal because it, it, it focuses its energy around the idea of, of music, of a song. Because, of course, singing is perhaps the best way for a community to join together in an emotion. It, it speaks of you know, the, the harp and the lyre. You, Imagine it being kind of like the ancient piano and guitar and then this command, you need to play these things skillfully. There's these words about singing a new song. This needs to be a creative time where, where the, the best musicians come up with something awesome. And, and the music that we're supposed to come up with here, it says, is not a, a Bach chorus. I'm not, nothing against Bach. But, but notice it, it says shout. Accompany these songs with shout. This is rock and roll. This is a gospel choir concert. This is something where there's lots of energy. And, and all of this that we have here, these images of shouting and playing instruments and singing and all of that, it's meant to capture a mood. There is for us, the psalm is saying, there is available to us this kind of joyful corporate celebration. It is an invitation to experience that together. And I wonder, as, as we hear this and begin to reflect upon it, whether that feels strangely unrealistic, maybe out of reach. Because that really doesn't feel like the mood that surrounds us right now, right? It seems very far from it. I don't know if you thought about it, but it seems to me that joy and hope are intimately interconnected. I, I don't think I've ever met someone 
who has this belief that everything is going to be bleak before them, that life is just going to get worse, and they're going to, get, and they're going to die, and yet is a super joyful person. If they have no hope, they have no joy. On the other hand, it's not hard to imagine, say, if I was in a very difficult situation. Maybe I had, like, no money. I was just living on beans and rice, working really hard, but I just found out that this kind of great uncle that I never knew about had, had loaned, had decided to leave me as an inheritance $10 million, suddenly my whole life would feel different. I could experience joy. Even though the situation in the moment might be hard, hope would suddenly make joy way more possible. Hope and joy are intimately connected. And we're in a time, I think, where, where really it's hard to find hope. That's not the way it's always been. Um, there, there's been, you know, if we look back in American history, America was oftentimes associated with like the country of optimism. Uh, as, as one who grew up in the 80s and 90s, I, I remember a, a difference of mood. Maybe those of you who are as old as I am might as well, where there's this optimism about us as a nation. You know, we had won the Cold War, right? We, we stopped Saddam Hussein. We were a, a beacon of democracy. Our, our family right now is re-watching the West Wing. And, and even that, you, uh, I'm struck by just the optimism. There's this sense that the government, if it does things right, can change things. Does anyone believe any of that now? I mean, when we look at the state of the nation, the state of our government, do you see hope? I don't. There also was a strong sense of optimism about the power of the individual. I don't know how many Disney movies, how many after-school specials I heard saying the same thing. If you just believe in yourself, you can do anything. If you just work hard, you can be the next Bill Gates. You can be the next Oprah Winfrey. We all are people with limitless potential. And now it feels different, right? I mean, I think more and more, I think as people are growing up, they, they, are, they feel like they are stuck. If you grow up in poverty, it feels like everything is stacked against you. If you grow up in wealth, you feel hyper-competitive and everyone seems better than you at something. And there's a greater awareness that we have of our own failings, our own psychological limitations, the, the, the sense of us being able to do things. Even if we somehow can become the next Bill Gates, what can we actually change? There's a lack of hope there. Or I think about technology in, in the... 80s was space age technology or, you know, talking about the age of the supercomputer and then came the internet. And, and when the internet first came, there was all this talk about the world is going to be able to come together. And once we come together, we'll be able to solve the environment. We're going to be able to cure cancer. We can do everything when we come together. Now, what's the conversation? It's like, uh-oh, the internet, there's all these algorithms and social media and notifications numbing our minds. There's fear rather than hope about technology. When I'm saying that there was an optimism before, I'm not looking back nostalgically and say those were the good old days. It actually feels like we've had like this multi-decade drunken binge that now we're suddenly feeling the hangover for with this false optimism. And now we're going, where is the hope? And it's interesting because I actually think the psalm that we just read basically says, well, you know, I, I could have told you that's what was going to happen. So if you look at verse 16, it, it says, the king is, is not saved by his great army. No matter how great America once was, no matter how great America might be, it's, it's not going to fix things. 
A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. No matter how capable you might be, the difficulties you face are too much for you with whatever abilities you have truly to overcome them. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. That's technology in that day, the war horse. And horses are great. Computers can be great. But it is a false hope to do what you need to do. The psalmist is saying, yes, you're right if you're feeling hopeless about these things because they are not enough. And yet the psalm doesn't land on a cynical note. The very opposite. It is saying there still is this communal, delightful celebration that is available to you. Not by looking at those things, but by having a greater hope, a hope in God. That's how it begins. Shout for joy. How? In the Lord. Shout for joy. Give thanks to the Lord. The, the, the idea is that this is the basis for hope. This is where your joy can be found. Which I realize is, is a very churchy thing to say, isn't it? You know, rejoice in the Lord. We, we know, if you've, like me, I've grown up in the church from infancy. I know that's what I'm supposed to do. Maybe you do as well. And maybe that's what we say, but it's hard sometimes to actually resonate with that, right? It can feel proper, but oftentimes it doesn't feel real. And, and I actually think that the psalm is written in such a way to help Help us get through that. This, this psalm after it says, shout for joy to the Lord. It's almost like it says, hear me out. Let me explain why. Let me, let me speak to you and, and invite you to internalize certain truths that if you do, it can lead you into this kind of celebration. And there are, these, there are really kind of two truths about God that if we understand, it can lead us to joy in God that our, our passage highlights. And then let me just kind of identify both of them. First, we are told that we have a God who is utterly reliable. And we have a God where there is no gap between what he says and what he does and how things turn out. Have you ever had a friend who likes to, who likes to talk and likes to just kind of share ideas but doesn't really like to follow through? I remember I had, I, I had a friend like that where he would just always come up with ideas and they would always seem cool and he would always be excited about it and he would say stuff like, yeah, we should do that. And over time I started realizing that is not what was going to happen. He would talk about doing things, but, but the idea was the fun part. He would never actually bring those things about. And our God is the very opposite of that. After, telling why, after saying we should celebrate God, what does it say in verse 6? By the word, sorry, he loves, verse 4, excuse me, for the word of the Lord is upright. That, that word upright literally means straight. The idea is our God is a straight shooter. He doesn't put spin on things. He doesn't speak in deceptive or twisted ways. He, he calls things like they are. What he says is what he believes and there is no gap. And what's more, it says, and all his work is done in faithfulness. When God says he will do something, he will do. There, there is no ideas that God just throws out for, for deliberation. There is no this kind of under-promising where he talks about something. No, everything God says he will do, do. There is no gap between his word and his action. And whenever God sets out to do something, he utterly, completely succeeds. 
I don't know if you, like our family, enjoy uh, watching like murder mysteries or sometimes like hospital dramas. They're kind of their own version of mysteries. But I, I feel like a number of times in these TV shows, there'll be a moment where there's like deep emotion and someone will say, promise me. Promise me you'll find the one who did this, or promise me that you will save this person's life. And when I'm watching, I'm always like, don't do it. Don't do it, because you know they can't. There is no way, no matter how competent the detective is, no matter how competent the doctor is, that they can be sure that they will succeed because it's not in their hands. But that's not the way God is. God is completely different from that. Verse 6, just think about what this is saying. By The word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So perhaps sometime today we'll actually see the sun, right? It might break through the clouds. And and if that happens, I invite you even in that moment to just kind of think about this, that that sun, this gigantic ball of fire that gives light and heat, that's one of just many, many, many. Like if you were to go in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, on a a clear night and you look up, you'll see thousands of, of, of stars scattered across the sky, and each of those are a sun in and of themselves, oftentimes even bigger and brighter. And, and what you're seeing when you look across the sky at all of those stars, all of those suns, is just a fraction of the hundred billion stars that fills the Milky Way. I can't, even, I can't even get my mind around that. And then I've been told by astronomers that the Milky Way is just one of a hundred plus billion galaxies which means there are a hundred billion times a hundred billion suns. I don't even know what that number is. And I certainly can't imagine something that vast. And, and the point I have here is God says a word. And all of that exists. He says a word and this world comes into being with its oceans. There is no gap. When God says something, it is. There is never a moment where God will have to apologize because things are delayed, because there's some unforeseen snag. Everything that God intends to do will take place. Our God is utterly reliable. What he says is what will happen. And what he says, what his plans, his choices are, we are told, and here's the second point, is love. Verse 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The earth is full of God's love. What does that mean? I, uh, when Jennifer and I lived in Sydney for a few years, we uh, one time were invited to uh, a congregation member's house who had this beautiful rose garden. And as he showed it, you could see his pride in it. But even more than that, when you looked, you saw just... Everything was carefully laid out. Everything was pruned perfectly. It was clear that this was his pride and joy that he loved. And the signs of his love for this garden were everywhere. And, And our passage is saying, if you just look, if you just look, you will see the signs of God's love for this world everywhere. It's no accident that when we see a sunset or a sunrise or a tree, there's a part of us that says, this is beautiful. There is something in us that God kind of almost is allowing us to experience his pride and delight in the world that he has made. When you study biology and you see the intricate nature of the ecosystem, how so many things work together to make life possible in different areas, that is God's detailed attention. We see everywhere evidence of a God who's posture towards this world is love. 
But it's not just this general desire of love for this world. Verse 11 talks about the counsel of the Lord, his plans. What is he planning? Verse 12 answers, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. That word heritage is adoption language. It's talking about choosing a family. Centuries upon centuries upon centuries ago, when God speaks to Abraham, he's essentially saying to Abraham, I want you to be my son. And then centuries after, when God meets with the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, he is essentially saying to them, I want you to be my family. And even today, Scripture tells us that whenever someone places their faith in Jesus, in that moment, they are experiencing the reality that they have now been adopted by God, where God says, I am your father, and you are my child. And what is adoption but a commitment to love? What is adoption but the choice to say, I will protect you and preserve you and seek to give you life in its fullness. And we are told here that that's the intent, that's the plan, that's the promise that God has. And we're even expanded upon what that means uh, in verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Have you ever had um, a situation where you've been in a, a group conversation that you found really difficult and, and you didn't know how to navigate it? And then after, someone comes over to you, maybe a friend or a family member, and says, hey, how are you doing? I, I saw you there, and, and it looked like this was hard for you. And in that moment, even apart from what the matter of the conversation was, there's something about that where you go, I, you feel loved, right? Because you were seen, because someone noticed you in a difficult situation. And what we are told here is that is how God is towards all who trust in him. His eye is upon you. He, he sees you even when no one else is paying attention. He sees the cries of your heart, the confusion of your mind. He sees the anxieties, the, the, the challenges. He sees. And, and notice, it's not just a love of attention, but it's a love of intention. He has a plan. He, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear in verse 18, verse 19, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Put positively, his eyes upon you so that he can allow your life to flourish. Because that is his purpose in love. In my uh, personal Bible reading right now, I've been reading through the Gospel of John, and I always found myself just kind of like stopping and being struck in the moment in, when, when Jesus, before the tomb of Lazarus, weeps. And as he is, he is weeping in that moment, it's not because he, he misses Lazarus. He knows he is about to rise Lazarus from the dead. I, I think it's because he sees. He sees the grief of Mary and Martha and the friends. He sees the gaping hole in this universe that death causes. He sees, but he doesn't just see. He asks. When he then calls Lazarus out, that resurrecting of Lazarus is a sign of what he is about to do, of how in just a few short days he will enter more deeply into our suffering so that he might bring them to an end. He will enter more deeply into our sins so that they might be completely dealt with. He will enter fully into our death, 
on the cross so that death itself could be conquered. And lest we just think that this is something that's unique to Jesus, Jesus makes it absolutely clear when he says again and again in the Gospel of John, I only do what I see my Father doing. I only do what my Father has told me to do. Everything I do comes from my Father. And what he's saying is that when I love you this way, when I lay down my life for you in this way, know that what you are seeing is the love of God the Father who is committed to you, committed to bringing life in its fullness. We have a God whose word is utterly reliable, whose choices are utterly irreversible. They will always come to pass. And what he has chosen is love. Now, if, if we are just able to, to just allow those to sink in, do, do you see what it means? It means that if you have placed your trust in Jesus, if God is your God, you don't need to be afraid. Yes, you will experience challenges in this world, we're told that, but you know that you have a God who sees you, who weeps with you, and who will bring you through it. And it's more than we just don't need to be afraid. You have the most certain, ineradicable, undoubtable reason for hope. I mean, just try to, to find the loophole. If you find yourself doubting that God actually could love you, then look at, at not just at the world, but look at the cross and ask, what does that actually tell me about God? Doesn't it tell you his love? Look at his word where he says right here, the eye of the Lord is on those who hope in him and fear him. And if this God, the God who just needs to speak a word and stars suddenly blossom into place throughout the universe, if that God is the God who has set his heart upon you and is committed to you, how can you not possibly know that your life before you is secure? What the psalmist says is, look and see who this God is. And if you can see, and if you can begin to taste this hope, you will know why I say, shout for joy. And yet, I, I have to just be honest, hopefully I've been honest the whole time, but just there's this honest kind of reflection here at the very end. And that is, even as I, I part of me recognizes this is re real, there, there's something irrefutable about this, there's also a part of me that still doesn't connect to this. And I wonder if you're like this as well. And I wonder why is it, why is it hard sometimes to enter into this level of joy that we're invited to? And as I've been reflecting upon myself, and maybe this is true for you as well, I, I think there's something about that that reminds me of... Um, of a student I once had as a youth pastor, a kid by the name of Nick Trigero. So uh, there was a time as a youth pastor, I, one of my best friends at the time, uh, a guy by the name of Umberto, who was a fantastic and accomplished rock climber. And so he took our youth group rock climbing. Nothing too complicated. There was like a hundred foot kind of cliff face outdoors outside of San Jose, and he was able to, to put an anchor at the top. And so the way it works, if you've never been rock climbing, this, this simple version at least, is you have the climber who has a harness, and you have someone called the belayer, who's the one who kind of keeps you safe. And there's a rope that's attached from the harness of the climber all the way up to that top loop, 
and all the way back down to the belayer, and the belayer slowly, whenever the climber takes one step or another, goes higher, he'll keep on pulling the rope so that there's no slack, so that if for some reason you fell back, the rope would catch you. And so this, this kid, Nick, was, was getting up pretty high. There's a certain point where you're up, you know, like maybe like 70 or 80 feet, and you realize this is kind of scary, and there's something kind of just visceral where your body kind of almost tightens up. And, and there was this moment where he didn't see any other places that he could climb. And, and he suddenly just started panicking and started gripping the rocks all the more tightly. And so here's the difficulty. When you are at a place where you can't go any further high, higher, you, you really can't climb down. Like rock climbing, it's very difficult to climb down because you can't see your hands or your feet are going to go. The only real solution if you can't go anywhere further is you actually have to let go of the things you are clinging on to and just kind of fall back and allow this rope that is secure to kind of slowly lower you down. And Nick wouldn't do it. And, and I get it, right? I mean, you're up 80 feet and there is one thing you feel like that is keeping you from certain doom and that is the rocks that you're holding on to. And the idea of not just clinging to it is just so counterintuitive. Even though you're getting exhausted, even though there is no hope or future in what you're clinging to, it is so hard to let go of it. And so what Umberger and I just were having to do was we were just like talking to him and trying to remind him, don't worry, the rope will hold you. Don't worry, we've got you. Because one of us, I can't remember which one of us, but one of us was belaying at the time. And we just kept on trying to help him to focus on that. And at a certain point, and I think it's just because he couldn't hold on any longer, he, he let go and started just kind of being lowered down. And, and as I recall, I feel like I could hear him kind of beginning to laugh because suddenly he knew he was safe. Suddenly he knew that all of this clinging was no longer needed because he was secure. And I wonder how many of us are like that. How many of us are clinging tightly to the things that we can hold on to? Clinging on to our plans, clinging on to our bank accounts and the security we feel like they offer to us, clinging on to our abilities, our careers or whatever, because we think that's, that's where our hope can be found, even though deep down we know they can never do what we're wanting them to do. It's just the idea of letting go of them is so terrifying, we still feel the need to hold on. And, and what our psalm is saying is there is no future in this. You are just going to get exhausted and your joy will be choked out. What the psalm is inviting us to do is to let go of our hope in princes and war horses and abilities and anything else and recognize that the reason for hope is that we have a God who loves us. And if we can just begin to kind of lean back into that, we will discover in our hearts a song of joy coming.